Oops, okay. Okay. Thank you, Bola. And um, thank everyone for coming. This Sunday coming, if I'm taking the announcements, I'm going to find a way of guilting everybody that hasn't come. I will make sure that I, in fact, I'll be taking Ibuku. Let's take attendance. <laughs> attendance. We want to know those whose names are written in the book and whose names cannot be blotted out. All of, all of you here. You are a special group. Oh, your wife, where is she? Your own wife. You have blotted. I don't know. I don't know. The last time a man, or the very first time when a man left his wife alone, you know what happened to, what happened to the world? And the men have not stopped doing it since. Except for people like Bola, people like Shegun oh, Shogwamu. I wouldn't like to call myself, <laughs> but, uh, ah, but it's, okay, my wife is there. I was even looking for her, too. All right, okay. Well, welcome, everyone, to Theology Day. Um, again, it's always nice to, I like to use you know, just the, the first two minutes to say, why do we do this? Why do we do this? One, um, here at City Church, we, have, we try to build a culture, There's a culture we're trying to build. And the way to build that culture, we've identified seven things that a gospel-centered urban church should have, seven of them. And of those seven, so you have things like community, worship, mission, um, justice, le- justice. Of course, I'm, I'm going to call ah, you guys, man. They never taught you anything in, in rhetorical school. I'm meant to finish with that. It's because you don't know any other one. That's why. Community, all of those things, right? And one of them is learning, learning. That is, oh, prayer and generosity. Now, that is, it's important to be people of knowledge. Now, it is not the ultimate thing. That's why, for us here, it's one out of seven. But it's a very, very important thing. Because God really wants to be known. But he cannot be known without truth. If you have the wrong truth about him, you worship him in the wrong way. And the Bible tells us that he wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So as we continually grow in our knowledge of God, we will worship him rightly. All right. And so how we study the Bible um, is going to be important. That is, we want to study the Bible rightly because if we study the Bible rightly, then we can study God better. If we study God better, we know ourselves better. And I'll say a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Today, But let me also say this. If we are going to study the Bible, the Bible, last time you checked, when you had your physically printed Bible with you, is a very, very big book. But let me tell you, even though it's a big book, let me tell you three things. Even though it's a very big book, it's really about one central storyline. And the central storyline is this, the revelation of the Trinitarian God and his relationship with his creation. It has one central storyline, but it also has one central character, Jesus Christ. It has one central storyline, one central character, and one central message, the gospel. So the revelation of Trinitarian God and his relationship with his creation, Jesus Christ, the central character, and the central message, the gospel. Now, if you have those three things, that even helps you already to know how to start handling the Bible. 
Now, we also know that the Bible is divided into two big parts, the Old and the New Testament. And if you want to understand the Testament in light of those three things I said, central storyline, central character, and central message, there are a number of themes, maybe about 20 themes, that run through the Bible that would help you figure out exactly what it's saying in many different ways in light of those three things I said. So one of those, for instance, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God helps you to understand how the Old and the New Testament come together, but you must always see that in light of the central storyline, the central character, and the central message. Now, another theme, you know, other themes could be things like maybe Sabbath. You can trace the Sabbath from Genesis to Revelation. You can trace temple. You can trace the people of God. Another theme is law and grace. Now, confusion abounds regarding this topic because it means a lot to people. So, for instance, some Christians bemoan that, oh, these older generations of people, they are so religious and they are so legalistic. These kinds of people that complain like this will say, I, we need more grace than law. Whereas others, looking at this, because you start going not just into grace, but you go into super grace, hyper grace, abundant grace. So some people now say, hey, let's be careful. Though. Let us not take the Lord's grace in vain. So if we take it for granted, we'll start going into all kinds of errors. So they say, yes, we have grace. So grace is there. It's where we begin. But after we start with grace, we have to work to stay in. Our salvation is, by, is kept by works. It's entered into by grace, but kept by works. These ones, these ones they, want, they want to start with grace, but you need to really balance it with law. And those are a few ways in which people try to understand law and grace. And I think both of those ways from the Bible are just fundamentally wrong. Both of them. It's not, let's have a balance of the two of them. No, no, throw the two of them away. Now, the last time we came and started this thing, we saw how the Old and New Covenants have the same structure. That is, both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant have the same structure. What is that structure? That they are both established and maintained by grace. Both of them are established and maintained by grace, but they are appropriated and enjoyed by obedience to commandments. The old covenant is established by grace, maintained by grace, but it has commandments that you are meant to keep. And so is the new covenant. We also saw what the law's problem, at least its main problem was. The law's problem was not that the law was bad. The law's problem was the misuse of the law because of inherent sin. All right? So those were the things we looked at. The recordings are there. But we said that the law's primary purpose, though not, the, not its only purpose, but its primary purpose was, and when we say the law, I don't mean laws, I mean the law given to Moses. The law's primary purpose was to do what? Was to point us to Jesus Christ, okay? So today, we want to look at law and grace now from the aspect of revelation. And hopefully I'll make some, you know, application, especially with, when I say application, remember, theology day is not like preaching. It's not really for how you, how you are going to solve all the issues in your life. It's that one we do on Sunday, that's where you get wisdom. This one we do knowledge, all right? But there may be one or two things, especially in light of many contemporary discussions, at least in Lagos, and as I said before on campuses, it would be good to 
uh, talk about one or two of those things, and then maybe you can ask me in question and answer, all right? So, the Bible opens in this way. Let's start, want to talk about Revelation. The Bible opens in this way, and the very beginning verse of the Bible is very important. How does it open? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that verse alone, if you remove that verse, the whole understanding of what the Bible means changes. That verse alone sets the tone for how you will understand the whole Bible. What do I mean? In the beginning, God. So this God existed before the beginning, right? He's outside of time. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he exists out of time, but at the same time, everything that we see, he existed before it, so he is not under it. He is outside of it. So this God created the things that we see. So also, we understand that this God is creator. And every other thing that he, cre that he created is what? Creation. Creator and creation. If you want to understand the Bible, one of the first things, and even your relationship with God, is to understand this most fundamental relationship, which is what we call the creator and the creature, or the creator and creation distinction. This creation, all of you here, or this chair that is here, this air conditioner that is here, occupies space. It is matter that occupies space, and this bollard that is here, who is matter that occupies space, 20 years ago did not have any gray hair on his head. The passage of time, the existence of space and matter that fills it, defines the creation. But that would mean that the one that created all of them cannot be defined in that way. The creator is always more complex than the creation. Isn't it? Right? For some of us who write computer codes, your computer code cannot write you. For any of us, any of us have, have you ever built anything? Bill, Francis is a builder. My friend, you have never built anything, you're always on the computer. You send other people to build. You just But for people like but builders will the the cement, the architectural design, the electricals, all of those things. As fantastic as they look, <laughs> I don't know. Oh my God, they didn't send you a message. They just came on. As fantastic as all of those things are, as complex, they are not more complex than the one who created them. Now, but then that brings us to something. If we have that creator, and we, the apex of his creation, because in Genesis 1, he tells us that we are created in his image. How can we know him? What is he like? Is it discoverable? Can an electric wire find out about the man who um, uh, created it? Now, myself and Shama. Shama and I met for the first time. Shama, when did we meet? Did we meet in 2016 or 2015? 2017? Eh? 2017. All right. Ishama and I came as we met, came introduced us, and we stood. The only thing I will know about Shama, because I can see, is that Shama is a guy. 
He's a human being and he's a guy, right? Except he tells me that he has some powers that turns him into a goat. But he even has to tell me that. Shama, are you from, you're from Boria, that side. I know you people have some funny, but let, we won't go into that. But Shama, I will not be able to have a relationship with Shama if I don't know anything about Shama. But I will not be able to know anything about Shama if Shama does not disclose himself to me. So the first thing he will say is, hi, my name is Shama. To which I'll say, how do you spell it? We are still all trying to figure out how we spell it. Does he have an R? No. All right, anyway. Shama will say, I am Shama. From there already, there's already an established relationship. Because I'll say, hi, I'm Shama. And I will say, hi, I'm Femi. From there, we have established a relationship. Why? The relationship was based on knowledge, but the knowledge was knowledge that was revealed. Isn't it? So for you to get to a relationship, you need knowledge. But for you to have knowledge, you need revelation. Now, if that is between two human beings, how do you think it's going to be between the creator and the creature? For us to know anything about God, and God wants to establish a relationship with his creation, it all has to start from the knowledge of God. But the knowledge of God will not come unless God reveals himself. And so from very early on, we find out that this is a God that likes to reveal himself. In fact, it says, in the beginning, after he said he created the heavens and the earth, remember he then said that there was uh, darkness and the earth was without form and it was void and um, the spirit of the Lord hovered all over the, the abyss. And then he said, and God what? Said. Anytime he says God said, his word, his revelation was even there in creation. But for his people, he had to say. So, God created Abraham and Eve. He said, let's make a man in his image and after his likeness. And then he says, God blessed them. 128, he says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. There, in God speaking to them, they already know something about God. At least he wants them to be fruitful. And their relationship is established. Now, in God's revelation as creator, I want you to know two things. There are two things that we must, he always reveals. One is that he is ruler, and the other is his glory. Maybe I should back up and even say something, step, step back. In my illustration with Shama, remember I said Shama um, will say, I am Shama. Femi will say, I am Femi, right? Then after Shama joins the church, and then uh, Shama starts knowing, oh, Femi is pastor in this church. Oh, so that means there's a certain way I should relate to him. Then I know, oh, Shama is a young guy who is an entrepreneur, so that means there's a way I should relate to him. But if Shama and I get into the same gospel community, and each time I want to read the word and, you know, I'm about to. Then Shama, all the time, I, they say, can somebody read? Shama is the one that interjects. He always interjects every time. I start getting a little bit irritated by Shama, isn't it? And then I find out that anytime they're about to serve suya and I'm about to get the last, uh, let's say it's chicken suya, and the chicken wing is there and I'm about to take it, Shama is always taking it. 
So I'm also irritated. What is going on there? I am learning something about Shama. He likes to read publicly, and he likes chicken wings. But I'm also learning something about myself. I'm a bit impatient. And sometimes I like to have my own way. In every human relationship, you are not just learning about that person, you are also learning about yourself. And in a relationship with God, the more we know about God is the more we know about what? Ourselves. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, guess what? They knew that God was, creature, was creator. He's the one that can say that. And if he was creator, then they had to know that they were creatures. Now, when God spoke to them, God said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and all of those things. So God was commanding them. They could see God's rule. But if we read Genesis 1.31, it says that when God saw all that he had done, he said it was very good. But him saying it was very good is like, I don't know if somebody has ever prayed in your front and the thing was too deep and you just said, glory. Right? Mr. Shui, you said it, Harry. I think you said it on my last preaching self. Right? Right? All right, let's forget. I know, I know you didn't say it in the last preaching. And also, when the psalmist in Psalm 19 is there reflecting about God's creation, thinking about Genesis chapter 1, in the way God thought about it, he says, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. So God's revelation is showing that he is both ruler and is also showing, he is displaying his glory. What I'm trying to also tell you is this, that creation itself discloses God. Creation, as you see here, is it forms a revelation of God. Romans 1 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God reveals himself in creation. So look at this step. Revelation, knowledge, and the knowledge is of God, and God's glory and his rule, but also of ourselves. So revelation, knowledge, leads to relationship. And in this creature, creator, this creator and creature relationship, we find out that God wants us to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. If we subdue the earth and bring, make something out of, the earth, out of the world that was not there before, what do we get? We get his blessing. God bless them. And you see the blessing. When you take sounds, when, when Toby takes the bass guitar and he, you know, he plays that, uh, that riff of uh, Here I Am, that thing blesses me. Just that bass sound. He blesses me. Why? Toby has known he's a creature. He's taken something of the world, sound. He's manipulated it in an ordered way. He receives God's blessings and it blesses others as well. If we do things right in the creator-creature relationship, we, 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 see, we, we, um, um, we, we see God's revelation. The revelation leads to knowledge of himself and us. Right? And then it leads to a relationship, and then 
he receives his blessing. Are we all following with that? So far, so good. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and then everything gets screwed up in Genesis 3. Because one of the things that God told them, part of his revelation in showing that he was ruler, was that, and as long as they followed this rule, they will be under his glory. Remember, if God has glory and we are created in his image, we also have his glory. As long as we follow his rule and his rule, we will also display his glory. If the creation manifests the, um, the glory of God, we also are in the apex of his creation, isn't it? But then God said, don't eat of this tree. In the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die, right? And the man surely ate of the tree. And that we call sin. And that's why Paul can then say, every time we sin, man has what? Fallen short of the glory of God. What was sin? At the most fundamental level, it wasn't just that he broke God's commandment. At the most fundamental level, it was a misunderstanding of the creator and creature relationship. Because the way Satan tempted them was to say, look, you also can be like God. You also can be like the creator, which is an impossibility. And they fell for it. In Romans 1.25, he even says it worse. As this whole thing progresses, he said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped, the truth about God is the one that he has revealed. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Now, the sin that entered, though does not change the fact that God continues to reveal himself, but it changes how God is going to reveal himself. So, what do I mean by that? When Adam and Eve were... When they sinned, in Genesis 3.23, we are told this. God, so the Lord God banished him, that's him, Adam, from the Garden of Eden to walk the ground from which he had been taken. Hmm. God banished him from, part of the blessing that he had was that God took him into the Garden. The Garden was where God manifested his closest presence with Adam and Eve. He said that God used to walk in the cool of the day. And now he was banished from that kind of presence for God. In fact, in verse 24, he says that there were two cherubims that were put there with flaming sword. You cannot enter into this presence of God again. It was judgment. Because they misunderstood that relationship. But at the same time, this judgment, as I said, does not alter the fact that God continues to reveal himself. You know, the reason why God reveals himself, and he reveals himself both as in glory, he continues to reveal himself in glory and his rulership, God does not change. It is in him that there is no variableness, neither is there any shadow of turning. But because humanity had now inherited sin, the relationship between God and that human and the humanity was now going to change. So we see in this first one that God's rule and God's glory was now manifested not in the fact that they will come close to God 
and receive his blessing, but now they were going to be cursed by God and banished from him. They still met God through his glory and through his, um, and, uh, his rule, but now they met God as judge. Amen? But there was another one. If that was verse 23, look at verse 21, Genesis 3:21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. When Adam had sinned, all of a sudden, they were naked before, but they were not ashamed, meaning that they had nothing to cover. But all of a sudden, the guilt of their sin now made them aware of things they were not aware about. Everything had changed. And so, one of the things God did, apart from he, could have, he showed them mercy because he could have wiped them out, but he himself, because he didn't say Adam and Eve tried, they took their initiative, what did they get? Fig leaves, which obviously was not going to cover them properly. God then took garments, um, made garments from um, the skin of an animal, in other words, an animal was sacrificed for them, and then covered their shame. Who took the initiative to do that? God. So he was still exercising his rule. And in covering them, he was showing his glory through his mercy. On the one hand, they had met God through his glory and through his rulership as judge. On the other hand, they had met God through his glory and through his rulership as redeemer. God as judge and God as redeemer. Now, this is Genesis 1 to 3, but this is now very fundamental for everything that goes on in the Bible, in particular for this whole topic on law and grace. So I'm going to rush through the remainder to then explain a little bit more. Now, so far we have seen that God has revealed himself in what? In creation. And we say that as he revealed himself in creation, he's revealing both his glory and his rulership. So revelation number one is his creation. If you open to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, remember, that's where I quoted from when I said that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. In fact, he also says that day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So in Psalm 19... 1 to 6, show us the glory of God in creation, the revelation of God in creation. But the remaining eight verses, that is from 7 to 14, skips, it now goes to another kind of revelation of God. There's revelation of God in creation, but here it says that the law of the Lord is perfect. Now it now goes to the law. It shows us, when it says it's perfect, it shows us that it's unique. It also shows us that it is special. Verse 10, it says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. But it also says, this law also reveals God to us and ourselves. Verse, 14, verse 12 says, Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And then, in verse 14, it says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, O Lord, my rock and my word, redeemer. In other words, what Psalm 19 is telling us is this. God's revelation through creation is very important. 
But God can never be revealed to you as redeemer, and creation cannot really tell you about your hidden sins, can it? In other words, we have one revelation, which is natural revelation, God in, uh, God in creation. But we still need to know this God and have this relationship with him in another way through what we call the scriptures. So one is natural, but the other one is special. Now, these scriptures here is only referred to as the law. Remember, we're talking about the law and grace. And I have to always state, because most people get this confused, when we speak about the law, we're not speaking about laws. Right? The law is a covenant, and in that covenant, you have laws, you have commandments. But it is a covenant that God established between himself and the nation of Israel. Again, it has commandments, but that is not the central thing. The commandments reveal something else. Now, if that is the law, we have two other sections in the Old Testament. One, the next one is what we call the wisdom. So you have law, which gives you a bit of, which gives you history. Then we have wisdom books. So the first 17 books of the Old Testament is law and the other part, history of Israel. The second five books, uh, second category is the next five books after the first 17, which is the wisdom books, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and whatever. And then you have a remainder 17. So 17, 5, 17, 17. The last 17 is called what? The last 17 is called what? That's the prophets now. I know they took light. Would they take light inside your heart? <laughs> Bible says that you must be children of light. You shouldn't stumble in the night. What's happening? All right. So we have the law. We have the wisdom. We have the prophets. Jesus says something in Matthew 11. He says, okay, we know the prophets. They prophesy, isn't it? That one, that one that's, not, that's a no-brainer. But in Matthew 11, Jesus says something about the law. He says, the prophets and the law, they prophesied until John. The prophets and the law prophesied until John. What does the prophet do? Yeah, I know, I know. He prophesied, but what, what's prophecy? What's he doing when he's prophesying? Eh? He's bringing the word of God to us, right? He's declaring, thus says the Lord. So we understand that about prophets. And therefore, we understand, we see a lot of thus says the Lord in the prophetic books. But then you get into the law, and Jesus is saying, the law itself prophesied. It is disclosing God. But what about the wisdom books? Now, the wisdom books, let's take the Psalms, for instance. David is, uh, wrote a lot, at least well, about half of the Psalms. David wrote a lot of the Psalms, right? And he said the Psalms are wisdom. But you know, David was also spoken about as a prophet in Acts chapter 2. Peter spoke about David as a prophet. In fact, he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he referred, he was not like, hey, you guys all revere David and all that. Look, let me tell you, David's tomb is here. David is dead. His tomb is here. He's been buried. But that because he was a prophet, he foresaw the resurrection of the Lord. He's now talking about Psalm 16, that you will, you will not suffer your Holy One to see... I know. I, I love when I say in the King James, you guys always get it right, right? Okay, good. 
right? You will not. You will not leave my soul in shoal, and you will, neither, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And it is also in Psalm 110, the most quoted uh, ver um, 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 verse in, in the New Testament. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a fool, which eventually said, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's David, spoken from the mouth of David in the wisdom book, but he's prophesying. The Lord prophesies. The wisdom prophesies. The prophets are all prophesying. And in prophesying, what are they doing? They are declaring the word of God. Scripture. So if you say that's the Old Testament, what about the New Testament? I can't go through all of it, but if you go, the same Peter that said David is a prophet, then goes in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 14 to 15, then says, you know Paul, right? Let me not lie to you. When I'm doing this, when I'm in Paul's sermons, and Paul is preaching, I'm nodding, I'm saying revelation. But it's too deep, even for myself, it's very hard. He said, Paul's, Paul's teachings are very, very hard. But he then says, but there are some people, because of their sin, even though it is hard, they go and take Paul's words and they twist it in the same way they twist the other scriptures. What's Peter saying? He's saying Paul's writings are also scripture. All right, so where am I going with all of this? That's the Old Testament, that's the New Testament. We are saying they are all scripture. If they are scripture and it is the word of God, what should they do they do? They reveal God to us both as judge and redeemer. This starts from the law prophets and goes to the epistles. Let me prove. For instance, let's start with the law. You are going to go with the law. You go from the law. You mean, that means Genesis, right? And in Genesis, you know what the whole book of Genesis is. If Israel is God's own people, a nation, in Genesis, God's uh, people is a family. So you move from a family, and Exodus to the rest of the book of Esther, it shows us that it's a nation, all right? So in Genesis, we have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 15, verse 1, for instance, God appears to Abraham. In fact, it says, the word of the Lord, Revelation, came to Abraham and said this, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now, shield, ah, I will protect you from your enemies. He is his redeemer. We see that there. But in 18, Genesis 18, Abraham is speaking with God. And he's speaking to God, he's interceding for Sodom. And he's trying to bargain and he said, ah, if there are 100 righteous people, what if there are 50 righteous people? What if there are 40? Right? Eventually, in verse 25, he says, look, shall not the judge of all the earth, shall he not do right? So in the patriarchs, we have God both as judge and what? Redeemer. And then, if you get into the other aspects of the law, so if that was Genesis with the patriarchs, you now get to Moses. Let's take Exodus to Deuteronomy. So, for instance, in Exodus, Moses wants to know who God is. And he even tells him that he should reveal his glory. Exodus chapter 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. The Lord himself is proclaiming his name. So this is what? Revelation. And what did he say? 
And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is God as what? Redeemer. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and the fourth revelation. That is God as what? And I can go on. Do you remember the, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, the day of the atonement? In fact, this one mixes both of them. All Israel have sinned. They now have to have this uh, sacrifice of this animal. God judges the animal. God has judged. But eventually he forgives the nation. God has redeemed or Numbers chapter 21, right? The children of Israel have done wicked things. God sends snakes among them. The, snake is, the snakes are biting them and is killing them. God is doing what? He is. But then God himself gives Moses the revelation to create a bronze snake. And anyone that looked on the bronze snake, they what? They live. That's God as what? And the prophets, anytime you read the prophets, most times when we read the prophets, we always think these guys are very angry. We read a couple of prophetic um, uh, verses like Micah chapter 7 last time, right? I will throw all your sins into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like he? Who pardons iniquity? If I wanted to summarize the message of the prophets, if I wanted to summarize the message of the prophet, it would go something like this. The word of the Lord can be summed up as warning of judgment and assurance of salvation in the prophets. Warning of judgment. He's coming. Oh, he's coming. He's going to do this. There's an army coming from the north. He will judge. He will sit as a refiner's fire. He will do all of these things. And yet there is the assurance of salvation. Let me just read one small portion, Isaiah 8, 21 to 9, verse 2. Isaiah 8, 21, 92. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Those aren't pretty words, guys. And then the next verse says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has Dawned. And so they look forward to a time when God's judgment and salvation will fully come to pass. So what do we have when we get into the New Testament? Now everybody say this. In the New Testament. In the New Testament. All right. All right okay. Well, all right. Let's start the car. Let's warm the engine. Now, now we warm the engine. Everybody say this. In the New Testament. We do not find a correction of God's revelation. We find a progression of it. 
God's revelation is not corrected. As some people say, it progresses. I will explain. Remember, you are seeing a God that is being revealed as both judge and redeemer. So take John chapter 1 verse 1, 1 to 3. John 1, 1 to 3 tells us, in the beginning was, that's revelation. Because it says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In other words, we have God here, we have word here, but God, word is also God. But word reveals God. In other words, word reveals God so perfectly that word is also God. You know how Shegun, if you see Fikayo, say, ah, she looks just like her dad. In other words, Fikayo's face reveals Shegun, isn't it? Right? But Fikayo doesn't reveal Shegun so much because Fikayo is a female and Shegun is male. There's only so much in which she can reveal. Now, if, you saw, if Shegun had a twin brother, right? you will have a revelation of Shegun very, very close. And yet, they will still be different. And what we are hearing is this. This word reveals God so much, so perfectly, that the word itself is God. And though he reveals God so perfectly, the God and the word that, the God, that is revealing that God are two different ones, people. Right? Do we, you understand what I'm saying? that we see that in this God, we have a multiplicity of persons. One God, but a multiplicity of persons. Now, when we get there, we said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then it says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So we see that this Word and this revelation of God was the agency of creation, isn't it? But then, because of sin, you then go to verse 14, and it says that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Ah. So this revelation was there in creation. It brought about creation. But because of sin, this word is now going to be revealed to humanity in such a way that even though we had God in creation, he's revealed. We have God in scripture, he's revealed. But now we have God as a human being, he's revealed. What are you seeing? You are seeing a progression of God's revelation. It's not going to now say that this word of God that became flesh, actually the things that you see in that word of God that is text, there are some of the things there that are wrong. This same word of God said that the scriptures cannot be what? Broken. And when he was saying that, he was talking about the Old Testament. Because it was an accurate, though not exhaustive, full picture of the revelation of God. Now, in trying to deal with the sin, he then says, later, this God, that is the word, then says, remember, he's meant to reveal the rule and the glory of God, isn't it? So in chapter 3, this word of God that became a man, who we find out to be Jesus Christ, meets a guy called Nicodemus and says, look, you're outside of the kingdom of God. Why? Because of sin. 
But for you to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again, isn't it? Born again into what? The kingdom, the rule of God. So he's revealing, again, the rule of God, but this rule of God now is what is going to bring about God's redemption. Are we following? Now, in that one, chapter one, I'll go back to that chapter one. I didn't finish quoting it. Remember, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the, only, the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not saying that there was no grace and truth before. He's saying now he's full of it. 16. Out of this fullness have we all received grace. Now, I told you before, the better translation, I think the NIV gets it. In the last one. Not grace um, for grace. or Some others put it in another. How, how did the King James one? Grace upon grace. That is that he's given us so much grace so that if you have so much sin, you can continue the so much sin because the so much grace will overcome the so much sin. That's not what he's talking about. I'm sure you know. He's saying you are going to receive grace, and here's how the NIV puts it, in place of grace already given. That Jesus Christ is bringing a grace. There was already a grace that was there before. How do you know what grace was there before? Verse 17, the next verse. For the law was given through Moses. That's the first grace. But grace and truth come through what? Jesus. This is the grace that replaces the grace that was already there. Why do we say that? It was in the giving of the law that God proclaimed himself to Moses and said that, I am the Lord, a gracious word, God. The law was a grace because it was a grace that was given by God. It was God revealing himself. God cannot reveal himself other than grace. Just as God cannot reveal himself other than the fact that he's holy, he does not change. If he was revealing himself like that in the Old Testament, what do you think he's going to reveal in the New? He is full of grace, but he's also the judge. He revealed his glory then. He will continue to reveal his glory. But the revelation of his grace, the revelation of his glory, the revelation of his judgment progresses as you move from the Old to the New Testament. It does not correct it progresses. And let me tell you where that revelation gets to its apex. In this same book of John, remember we're thinking glory, glory, because the prophets will be talking about judgment. That's one line. They'll be talking about salvation. That's another line. And it's like a railroad track that keep going, keep going, and they don't know where it's going to go to. It's revealing God in both places. In John chapter 12, in a very similar way. Because, sorry, in John chapter 1, they said, of his fullness we have received uh, uh, grace upon grace. That we've seen him, he's full of God's glory. In John chapter 12, Jesus says something that some people that come to meet him, they're not Jews, they are Greeks, Gentiles. Some of his disciples keep him away, keep them away. And because Jesus had said, look, I'm, I'm first called to the, house, to the lost house of Israel. Right? I'm not my, his ministry was largely not among Gentiles, just a few places. But it was largely among 
the Jews. And then these Greeks, these Gentiles are coming. And then he now says this, John chapter 12. I'll just read a couple of the verses there. John chapter 12, I'm going to read 23, 27 to 28, 32 to 33. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Don't forget, if he's God's revelation and he's going to be glorified, that means in Jesus' glorification, we're going to see God's glorification, right? Jesus is God, the Word, but is the Word made flesh. So if Jesus is glorified, God is being glorified. So the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. Then verse 28, Father, glorify your name. The Son is going to be glorified. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. Verse 32. So he was now telling these people, okay, look, you want to see me now. Now is not the important time for you to come and talk to me. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will be able to draw all people to myself. That is, both Jews and Gentiles. But what was he talking about? Then he was talking about this lifting up. Because this lifting up was going to be his glorification. What was he talking about? He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, you and I know that is the death on the cross, isn't it? Have you ever seen the death? Of, have you ever not, um, understood that the death of Jesus Christ is the apex revelation of God? Because there, the glory of God was seen. Father, glorify Lord, your name. And he was saying that, in the death I'm going to die, I'm going to glorify God. You can see this unjust killing. You can see this display of weakness as it is. And it is the revelation of God's glory. What does this mean? One, Jesus himself is the full manifestation of God. Jesus is the full manifestation, revelation of God. The word became flesh. For us to ever, Philip said, uh, Philip said, show us the Father. He said, how long have I been with you, Philip? If you see me, you who? See what? The Father. But it's not just Jesus as his person, but Jesus in his work. My work, my meat is to do the will of my Father. Or I have come to work the works of God. And what was that work? Ultimately, he was going to die and rise again. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, God, in diverse ways and at many times, has spoken to us, Revelation, through the Father, has spoken to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. That is, when we see his Son, we see God, but what the Son came to do. Remember I talked about that railroad track, judgment, redemption. What do you think is going up on the cross? On the one hand, God is judging him. So you see God as judge. On the other hand, God is redeeming you if you believe in him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him as a revelation that whoever believes in him will not perish. Why? Because the son was given to perish. I will judge him and not judge you. Will not perish but have what? 
eternal life. And so hear this. What's the difference between law and grace? Law was pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Law was a particular revelation, but it was not the full revelation. In the law of God, we find, or in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we could see that there was but one God. In the New Testament, you are not going to correct it and say there are now three gods, right? In the New Testament, what do we find? How many gods? But now we know more clearly that that one God is what? Three persons. Progression of revelation. As we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, for instance, we can see judgment. Some people say, you know what? And I hear this a lot. It's terrible. When we see God through Jesus Christ, God is love in Jesus. So, as somebody, one particular preacher is saying now, so for instance, when we go to the book of Job, and it says there that God allowed Satan to be judging, he says, no, 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 look at Jesus. God is not going to allow, he's not. So what is he saying? We need to correct the book of Job. Or some people say, you know that guy that was killed for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, and God was the one that told Moses, kill the guy. Ah, ah, no, 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 no. We have to reveal, we have to understand the Old Testament through the person of Jesus Christ. And since Jesus is love, and Jesus reveals the God of love for, you know, um, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone, because we know that God is love. A God of love cannot be saying, well, what's in gathering sticks? Or the slaughter of the Amalekites. How can we see? So the New Testament there is meant to correct the view of God that these Old Testament people, they were seeing, but they were mixing it. Let me tell you something. You've not seen judgment in the Old Testament. It's in the New. Because where one is talking about physical killing, One is saying that you will be banished from the presence of God forever and you will be tormented forever and ever in a way worms don't die. Imagine being consumed every day for a billion, billion, billion years. Tell me which one you'd rather have. The Old Testament was showing us a picture that God was a judge. By the time you get to the New Testament, everything becomes on an eternal scale. You still see a wrathful, judging God in the New Testament, and the person that speaks the most about that wrathful judging God is who? Jesus Christ. So if they say we should use Jesus Christ to look at the Old Testament very well, let us lose him. The Old Testament has got nothing on judgment in what Jesus has said. In fact, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, he said his eyes are like blazing fire. His feet were in hot bronze. The scale of judgment becomes on an eternal scale. But at the same time, the salvation is also on an eternal scale. You see, if in the Old Testament you saw that the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, the oppression of Egypt, we know in the New Testament that God's people are delivered from the slavery of sin. If in the Old Testament we see the children of Israel, as it were, go in to the Red Sea and come out of it as though they were dead and they rose 
again, in the New Testament, it says that if any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. It's almost like you are dead. You who were your, in your trespasses and your sins, you has he made alive. In the New Testament, we actually see a spiritual resurrection, which ultimately will be fulfilled in a bodily resurrection. The, the coming out of Red Sea has nothing on that. If in the Old Testament we saw the, new, the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and eventually entering into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, we see the people of God, the church, moving from a place where they are spiritually resurrected, having a resurrected body, and now not just inheriting a parcel, a piece of land in the Middle East, but now he says that you are inheritors of what? The whole world. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Do you see what happens? In the Old Testament, you have a revelation of God. In the New Testament, that revelation is ratcheted up. If in the Old Testament, you can see God dwelling and ministering and talking with the people in the Garden of Eden, and eventually they enter into the promised land where God's presence is because of the temple. In the New Testament, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, after you have resurrected bodies, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God now is with men. And in this one, he says, in the Old Testament, he said, You cannot see my face and live. Moses saw his back, back part. The face of Moses was shining. They had to put a veil on it. Now he says in the New Testament, they will see his face. Do you guys understand? The difference between the law and grace is not a difference in it's not a corrective difference, something that was deficient in the law. The law fulfills its purpose. The problem is when you try to use the law for what the law was not designed for, that's when it becomes a problem. As I said the last time, the law, think of the law as, as a live wire. Live wires are very good because they give us light. Go and touch it. When you misuse it, it takes that occasion and it destroys you. And so Jesus, we see, if we see God in revelation of creation, that is natural, one. We see God in the scriptures, that is the special revelation, the inerrant, infallible word of God. And three, we see God in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. I am not taking you back to the law, I am the reason why the law exists. And so in God, we now have this revelation. Revelation, and in Jesus Christ, we have the revelation of God. Revelation of him as redeemer and even as judge. Because who is the one that will judge the living and the dead that is coming? Exactly. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word holds together. We thank you that there is no error in it. Lord, we also come humbly because it's not always easy to always understand. And many times we are seeking you and we are not always seeing the things rightly. And there are many of our brothers and sisters also who, in a bid for zeal, end up saying what we shouldn't be saying. Help us to always see that it is about Jesus Christ ultimately. But that Jesus Christ as he has been revealed, not as we want him to be revealed. Help us to desist, desist from the sin that wants to create you into our own image. 
when we know that you are the one that created us in your image. Help us, Lord God Almighty, to understand your scriptures better so that we can worship you better. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.